Well, thanks to uh, our diaconate ministry for their faithful service Uh, on our behalf to the believers in Japan. uh, What um, beautiful fruit that God, through His Spirit, is producing in our midst. May all glory go go to Him alone. When I received that email this past week, I believe it was Thursday, and the deacons notified us that how much uh, the church had gave to uh, to serve and help the people in Japan. I I thought it was a typo. I thought it was $1,240 when when I realized it was $12,000, over $12,000. I was in tears. So grateful to the Lord for the gospel doing this and uh, um, praise praise Christ and may God use these funds to uh, encourage and comfort um, the believers in Japan and also the people in Japan as well and uh, I believe there is a double fold reason uh, I think those who give are blessed because it becomes a platform for the gospel Matthew 5 um, 14 through 16 says you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is a good work that others will praise God for. It's not our prayers. It's not our Bible studies, it's not our preaching, but this is a good work, and we ought not hide it. We ought not be ashamed or cover it up. Many times in the New Testament, God calls believers to shine their light, show forth their good works, because as we give, God uses it for the gospel. So we encourage you to let people know what God is doing through Cornerstone in terms of mercy ministry in Japan. Uh, I was specifically praying for Rex's parents, John's parents, and Evan's parents. Uh, I believe they're all unbelievers of Japanese origin. And for them to know that Cornerstone, because the grace of God, has, are ministering to their people uh, because of Christ. And we pray that this would open their hearts to Jesus, where they see um, the love and compassion Uh, among Christians, for their people, it would soften their hearts for the gospel and that they would glorify the Lord as well. We pray that this would soften hearts for many of our parents. You know, my mom speaks Japanese because she went to school while Korea was under occupation by Japan. And uh, there's a lot of talk in the Korean community how this is a judgment that God has brought upon Japan for their war crimes in the past generation. And I've used this to share the gospel to my mom, to my mom and tell her, not at all, we're all sinners saved by grace. And if God judged sin in this way, we would all be swept away in a tsunami. And may, may we use this uh, to preach the gospel to our family members and also to this world as well. And that even if they don't agree with our gospel, Maybe they would say, it's a good thing that churches exist. It's a good thing that Cornerstone is here because what they are doing for for this world, for for the people and for for people in need. So we we ask you, Cornerstone, we want to make it a point as well. We don't want to hide our light in this area. We want to shine it forth 
we encourage you to shine shine the light forth as as well. So we're we encourage you as we have given to the Lord to continue to pray for the believers at Sendai, uh, people in Japan, uh, the whole nation. Their suffering has has just begun. It's going to be a, a long and difficult road for them. Let's continue to pray and uh, uh, seek to live below our means so that we might be generous givers. Uh, if God blesses us, let's uh, live below even that so that we might give to others because God has so richly have given to us. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open to uh, Galatians chapter 3 with the reading of God's word. Um, if you would stand together. Galatians chapter 3, we studied verses 1 through 5 last week. We will be studying verses 6 through 9, but we're going to uh, just read from verses, verse, starting verse 1, all the way to verse 9, Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer or experience so many things in vain? Indeed, if if it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Please be seated. Well, um, I can tell that uh, I'm getting older. I many ways I can tell I'm getting older. I could talk for an hour about how I know I'm getting older, but I'm not gonna, that wouldn't be right. Um, one way I know I'm getting older is I'm doing things I never thought I would ever do in my life. I made, a, I made personal vows. You don't really make vows, but just in your heart. You make those instinctual personal vows. I will never do this. I find myself doing things I never thought I'd ever be doing. And, and um, you know, so I go to 24-hour fitness, and I stay away from the group classes that they have in the gym. I it was like, I was allergic to that. It was, and I kind of looked down on, especially men who are involved in those classes. So I hung out with the guys with the cutoff shirts. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. So Joe Pio, he's like, he's got that look. Like <laughs> his hero is like uh, being cut apart right now. Um, so I would be in the basketball court playing ball with the guys, or I'd be lifting free weights. No machines here. You know, only when you know those small muscles, free weights. I'm getting older though. So uh, Sir and I have been doing this for our date night. We've actually been 
for a few weeks now, going out to our and taking um they have a, a Pilates and yoga class. I, so I, I never thought I'd do Pilates. I thought it was kind of Italian dessert. Um, I never thought I would do yoga for the life of me. Uh, finding myself doing this class, enjoying it, actually, you know. All right. So, so if it's Thursday night, please don't come to 24 Fitness in, in, in Jamboree and Irvine. Please. That would be very awkward. Anyways, um, so first class I'm there, and like we start, and I am dying. It is the hardest thing I've done in my life. I'm, my body is contorted. I'm like twisting. If you guys, I'm, I'm not very limber. I'm not very flexible whatsoever. If you want a good laugh, just watch me try to kick something. Me and Ruben are, are, are twins. Our DNA is the same. It's like embarrassing. And I'm sweating. I'm cramping and I'm dying. And it's just a warm up. <laughs> it's been five minutes and I'm ready to throw in the towel. So they're saying warm up is very important before we get into the text. So all that to just introduce the introduction here. Before we get into the text this morning of verses 6 through 9, we have to do a little bit of uh, warm-up exercises. We have to prepare ourselves um, before we get into the text. And I'm finding that, I think you know, Bob quotes John Wooden all the time, the will to win is secondary, the the preparation for the will to win is the most is, is key. Preparing yourself. So I know all of you, you want to have a victorious week coming up. You want to walk with Christ. You want to overcome temptation. You want to grow in grace this week. Well, if you want to do that this week, uh, the preparation is right now. And your heart condition, as we studied last week, whether your heart is hard towards Christ whether your heart right now is filled with worries and anxieties for this world or desires for this world is of utmost importance because if your heart is in that condition, the word of God will just bounce right off to a pathway and Satan will take it away. Or the word will land and for like 30 minutes after service there will be joy, but it will be gone that quickly, be choked out. and There will be no lasting fruit and you have an awful week as a Christian. But right now, in this holy hour, as the gospel is being preached to you, you hear it with faith. And that's the good soil, right? That's the good heart. It's the heart that's seeking to believe and asking God to help him or her in their unbelief. You do that right now. Then God promises that seed, that word of the kingdom that is sown in your heart will produce a harvest 30, 60, 90-fold. And you won't see it today or this afternoon, but this week you'll see it. And so I encourage you how important preparing yourself and trusting and believing in Christ during this time is so important. The fight is now, the fight is not this week. In verses 1 through 5, Paul appealed to the experience of the Galatians. Paul appealed to their experience of how they were saved and how they were being sanctified. And this is a very important topic for the Christian experience. Right? Experience in our lives, experience as believers, that we are to experience God through the gospel. That our relationship with God is not just objective, it's not just intellectual. 
It's not a legal transaction. It's a spiritual, intimate, personal relationship that is to be experienced through faith and through the Holy Spirit. And so Paul appeals to this experience. Now, experience is a, you know, it used to be a bad word in our church years ago, no longer. I hope it is not to you. I hope that this is what we are seeking in Christ. But experience, we can't just jump into it. We need to um, really carefully understand uh, how experience works. Experience is uh, unique for each and every one of us. Uh, unique experience is very private, individual, and unique to each and every one of us. You can't tell me that this apple tastes good because you don't know how this apple tastes to me. All you know is this apple tastes good to you. And by faith, you're telling me that this apple tastes good, but you don't know how it tastes to me. People, I remember the first time I had pho, this guy took me, kind of kidnapped me against my will and drove me 30 minutes to eat pho, and I did not like it. And I figured out why. It's because I just can't handle cilantro. I don't know why. I have a strong distaste for cilantro. But you can't tell me cilantro tastes good because you don't experience what I experience. Uh, We have different experiences. And it even goes beyond our, our culture and our family. People in the same family can have different experiences, although they're closest to one another, right? I can't help but think of uh, John and Amber Tadakura. They're not here today, so I can talk freely about them. <laughs> as far as I know, John is a devout Lakers fan. Uh, he watches the Lakers, and it warms his heart. And there is someone in his family closest to him, his best friend. And yet when she watches the Lakers, it hardens her heart. And she has an opposite experience. I, I, I see Celtics, I see Rondo, and I just want them to lose. Right? When the Celtics lose, it's a good day, right? When the Heat lose, it's an okay day. When the Celtics lose, I'm happy on that day. It's not personal, it's just that organization, their uniform, their history, all of that, their fans, just, right? But for Amber, man, she's got Rondo as her profile on her Facebook. <laughs> She can't get enough of the Celtics, right? I mean, so even though it's, you would think same family, same culture, they're both Christians, different experience. Same thing in terms of religion, spiritually. Um, I remember when I got saved and I would read verses or hear songs or I remember hearing the the teleological argument for the existence of God, that there's, a, there's design, there must be a designer, right? Jordash, there must be a Mr. Jordash, because Jordash genes exist, right? Calvin Klein genes, designer, design, there must be a designer. And for me, that was so powerful. Like, I couldn't be an atheist anymore. I remember sharing that with my friends, and it did nothing for them, Right? Um, I'm sure you've had that experience where you've read a verse and you went to your family and shared this verse because it was so powerful to you, but their experience was, was nothing similar to yours. You've seen believers or people who go through harrowing experiences, go through trials and difficulties, and some people 
fall away because of those trials. Other people, same or similar trials, they draw near to God. It becomes a source of encouragement in their faith. I've been to Auschwitz, and there are people who say, I cannot believe in a God who allows such horrors to happen in the world. There are people who have been in Auschwitz, and they cannot believe in God because of that. At the same time, there are people who experience this very same thing and say, my faith was strengthened. My faith began in the concentration camp. Experiences, private, it's unique, and it's unpredictable. It is different for every single one of us. But here, Paul, in verses 1 through 5, by appealing to the experience of the Galatian believers, what he is saying is, that every Christian who believes in Jesus has a common experience. It's a radical statement. He's saying, if you're a Christian, this is your experience. He's telling us, metaphorically, this apple tastes good. I don't care what you say, it tastes good. You like cilantro. You love the Lakers. Whatever you're feeling, he's imposing this as truth for all believers. And what he's saying literally is not about food or Lakers. He's saying, if you're a believer, you've received the Spirit by faith. Your righteousness, right? Any good work in your life, any goodness, any holiness is a result of your faith. God is not responding to you. You are responding to God, right? God has done this work by faith and faith alone And faith is the source of all of your righteousness, not just in your conversion, but currently in your Christian life. Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit and he presently works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by faith? What you're experiencing today, right now, you're growing in Christ. You're experiencing generosity in your heart, compassion for believers, You're longing to serve Christ. Is that the result of your righteousness? Your works of the flesh? Or is that the result of faith? Paul saying, this is the truth. This is what you are experiencing. It is by faith alone. So Paul appeals to their experience. And then by him recording it in the scriptures, he is uh, declaring this to be the common experience for all believers. He's saying the Galatian, believers in Galatia, their experience is the uh, experience that is consistent with the will of God because it is recorded in the scriptures. And then starting from verse 6, he uh, defends their experience with the word of God, with the scriptures. And doing this, he's telling us that experience does not validate truth. Experience is not self-authenticating. Our experience, because we experience, doesn't mean it's true. Only experience that is true is that which correlates with the Bible, with the Word of God. Does that make sense? Right? Spiritually speaking, only spiritual experience 
that we know to be true are the ones that are affirmed by the word of God. Any experience that is contradictory to the scriptures, we cast away. For example, all of us, when we were saved, we were saved as Armenians. Not Armenian as an ethnicity, but Armenians as a theological category. We were all man-centered when we were young, um, young Christians, when we first became Christians. We were very proud, very legalistic, very self-centered, and we believed Christianity revolved around us, and everything we experienced was, I did this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to live for God. It's all up to me. I exercise free will. I'm going to serve in this way. I'm going to grow. That's our experience. But as we grow in the scriptures, as we grow in our understanding in the word of God, we discover through scripture that our experience cannot authenticate or cannot be truth or, or theology or doctrine. It's not authoritative. Scripture breaks us down and humbles us and, and reveals to us our experience is our interpretation, our faulty, sinful, pri- proud, man-centered interpretation of our experience, and it's not true. In fact, the truth is we are just passive re- recipients of our salvation. We don't have free will. We are not in control. We are not sovereign. We are not the ones in authority. We are sinners through and through. Even though we experience some remnant of righteousness that cooperated with God for our salvation, the reality is we were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. We weren't just dead for a few days. We were dead where we were on the bottom of the ocean and we had no carcass left. Our body was eaten away by the the, uh, uh, um, creatures of the sea and God gave us life. God rescued us. God saved us and gave us life. And that is what occurred. He saved us according to his will, not according to our, our will. So, that, so that's an example of how scripture breaks us down. Our scripture is truth and not our experience. And Paul is doing the same thing here. Paul appeals the Galatians and their experience But that is not the authority. The authority is the Bible. And by his recording of it, we know it's authoritative. But for their sake and also for ours, he bases the truth that we are justified by faith, not on their experience, because the Galatians experienced it, but on the word of God. So we we find ourselves in verse 6. Now, to rightly understand verse 6, we have to start with verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. It is by faith you are saved. It is by faith you are sanctified. And verse 6, just as Abraham, and note the quotation marks, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is quoting an Old Testament text, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And so here we see Paul defending the heart of the gospel with the Old Testament scriptures. 
there is like a theological one-upmanship going on here. Uh, the, the Judaizers were greatly influenced by the Pharisees. The Pharisees had co-opted Moses and the law. They, they took it over and they prided themselves as being followers of Moses. Um, remember in John chapter 9, when that man was born blind, was given sight, the Pharisees had an interrogation of this man, and this man answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. What I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. And he told them, this man is surely from God, because who has heard of such a thing, giving sight to a man born blind? The Pharisees were so offended, they said to that man, you are a follower of Jesus, that's why. We are followers of Moses. Right. You are his disciple, verse 28, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, talking about Christ, <coughs> we do not know where he comes from. So the Pharisees prided themselves on, on Moses and on the law. The Judaizers and the rabbinical tradition uh, were influenced by the, by the Pharisees, and they, so they were all about Moses and the law circumcision, Sabbath, dietary laws, and that was their banner, Moses and the law. So Paul says, okay, I'm going to go up even higher than Moses. Right? You're all proud about boasting about Moses. I'm going to bring up someone who is even above Moses, and who is that? It's Abraham. Right? Moses gave the law to the nation of Israel. Abraham. He founded Israel. He's the father of Israel. Every Israelite comes from Abraham. The nation of Abraham began with, nation of Israel began with Abraham. So you can't go any higher than Abraham. You can't go to Adam, right? You have to go, Abraham's the last one. He's the, high, he's the patriarch. He's the father of the nation of Israel. So, so Paul goes to Abraham. He says, uh, just as in ESV, um, NASB says, even as, I like NIV, consider Abraham. He wants to connect the experience of the Galatian believers, how the Holy Spirit came upon them and how they were righteous before God by faith, and he connects that to Abraham's experience of how he was reckoned righteous before God by faith and not by works. And by doing this, he's telling them, I am not an innovator. I am not starting a new religion. I, am not, I did not come up with a novel, new teaching. The message that I'm telling you, my gospel is found in the Old Testament. It's found in our patriarch. It's found in the book of Genesis. This has been the message of God from the very beginning. This is found in Abraham's life. Abraham is a hero of faith. He is called three times in the Bible a friend of God. 
1 Chronicles 27, Isaiah 41, 8, and James 2, 23, Abraham is called a friend of God. Abraham is mentioned, Paul mentions Abraham 19 times in his letters and eight times in Galatians alone. So almost half the time uh, that Paul speaks of Abraham, he's doing in this letter that we're studying. Paul is contrasting not really Abraham and Moses. It's not a personality cult. He is contrasting Moses and justification by works of the law with Abraham and justification by faith. It's a theological contrast, not a personality contrast. The question is, how did Abe, right? How did this guy become God's friend? How did this happen? How did this man become a friend of God? How was he righteous, accepted, justified before God? How did he achieve this? How did he experience this? Um, some believe uh, it was a reward or he earned it. The Pharisees believed this. I am certain Judaizers, that was their interpretation. I won't bore you with the details of going through the Talmud, the commentary on the Torah, where they say that Abraham was, a, was righteous because of his faithfulness, not his faith. And they point to um, just three key texts to show that Abraham achieved righteousness or earned it as a wage. Um, we don't have the time to turn, but these are passages that should be fairly familiar to you. In Genesis 12, um, Abraham was in the land of Ur, and God told Abraham, leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, the land that I will show you. And Abraham did. He obeyed. Therefore, God blessed him. In uh, Genesis um, 17, when he was 99 years old, uh, third time God has uh, appeared to him, and God commanded him to be circumcised, him and his family. And uh, that's a tough command, right? At 99 years old. But Abraham obeyed God. And so the reward is, you're my friend. Right? You are righteous. And then the ultimate test, ultimate obedience, Genesis 22, murder your son. Kill your son. Isaac, whom you love, sacrifice him, then I will love you and you'll be justified in my sight. God commanded, Abraham obeyed. I mean, he was willing until the last instant. God provided an alternative sacrifice, a substitute, and therefore, because of Abraham's obedience, God blessed him with a justification. That is the Judaizers' interpretation of the events. Now, you know, hearing it this morning, you might say, you know, that sounds plausible. That makes sense to me. God rewarded him for his obedience. Uh, this is we're still stretching. This is still warm up here. Okay, this is uh, this is still warm up. When we study the scriptures, we must be careful to separate between description and prescription. Right? 
we must discern between what a passage is describing what happened and with God's revelation, God's declaration, God uh, just prescribing the truth. So there are many things in the scriptures just describing what happened, but doesn't tell us what the truth is. For example, um, this is going to resonate a lot more with our second service, the singles, but people look at how Isaac got married to that beautiful lady, Rebecca, and what, it, what, it, what happened, Abraham sent the servant, Eliezer, to go back to his hometown, and Eliezer went by a watering hole, and camel was thirsty, and Rebecca came and gave water to the camel, and she was the one God chose to marry Isaac. And people read that, and people have given sermons. That's biblical courtship. That's biblical dating, right? So for guys out there, tell your wig man to go back to your hometown and uh, go to a gas station and just wait. And if a beautiful lady comes and offers to pump gas for you, she is God's chosen one to marry your, your I don't know, lead pilot, I don't know, your friend, Right? Well, no, that's an improper application of this story in the Old Testament because the Bible is just recording a historical event, not telling us how to date. So Genesis 12 and Genesis uh, 17 and Genesis 22 is just a description of what Abraham experienced, but not a revelation of what was really happening. To find out what was happening, you go to Genesis 15:6. God appeared to Abraham three times, and the second time, when he cuts, when he makes the covenant, he tells Abraham to go outside, look at the stars in the sky, how many do you see? Countless. As many as there are in the sky, they'll be your children. And it says there, Abraham believed God. And it was credit to him as righteousness, and that's God speaking. So God is telling us that Genesis 12, him leaving was by faith. Him being circumcised was because of faith, was a fruit of faith. Him offering Isaac to be sacrificed was because of his faith. What made him righteous before God was not these works, but his faith. That was confirmed to be true by his righteousness, but the source was his faith. And this is further affirmed by the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, 9, and 10. And Hebrews 11 is all about faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place to receive his inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in that land, a foreign land, living in tents. For he was looking forward the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the revelation, the declaration of God is Abraham was justified by faith. And because he was justified by faith, he left this family. He left this country to a place he didn't know because he found in God someone who loved him, who knew him and loved him and accepted him. He was circumcised as a seal of this covenant because of that same reason. And he offered up his son for that same reason by faith as well. 
And in fact, Genesis 15, when God declared his righteousness by faith and circumcision, Genesis 17, there's at least a 14 years of separation between those two events. Right? Rabbi scholars say 29 years, some say at the very least 14 years. So chronologically, we know that circumcision occurred after faith and righteousness. He wasn't declared righteous because of circumcision. No, he was uncircumcised. He wasn't Jewish according to the Judaizers. But he was accepted by God by faith and not by works. So the interpretation of the Judaizers, the the, the rabbis or those even today that would teach that Abraham was justified by faithfulness cannot be true. We know from Genesis 15, 6, what Paul is quoting here, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I want you to look at um, believed God there. Uh, It's a compound word. It's uh, epi and pisteo. It's pistes is faith, but there is a prefix, an intensive prefix, epi. And according to uh, J. Moulton's grammar of New Testament Greek, when you find that compound word with the epi before the word faith, it emphasizes the initial act of faith. So Abraham was considered righteous not after years of proving his faith. Not after his faith was mature and grew and he, and he had this great quantity and quality of faith and he finally you know, achieved this rank of being justified. At the moment he believed, with that mustard seed of faith, that weak, imperfect, minuscule faith, He was considered righteous because what saves us is not the quality of our faith or the amount of our faith. What saves us is the object of our faith. So if you have a a thousand gallons of gasoline, a single spark would would cause an explosion. Likewise, because the gospel is so powerful, because God is so powerful, At the moment Abraham trusted in God, believed in God, God enacted this legal transaction. Verse 6, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that word counted is is a legal term. Lawyers here will love it. It's a financial term. It's logizomai. ESV is counted, King James is accounted, NASB is reckoned, NIV is credited. It's a financial, commercial context. So God reckoned him. God imputed perfect righteousness in Abraham's account because of his faith. Uh, We see this in Philemon chapter 1 verse 18. Um, if you don't know the story behind Philemon, that's okay. I mean, uh, it's a real small letter. 
Philemon had a, a slave, Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. While he was escaping, he ran to Paul. He had become a believer. And Paul's telling Onesimus, you're Philemon's slave. You should go back. As you go back, I know Philemon. Give him this letter. And in this letter, Paul says, Onesimus has wronged you by running away. But now he's a believer. So accept him and love him. Embrace him. Welcome him back. Don't treat him harshly. And then he says this. He said this in verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Same word, like it's a mine. So if he stole from you when he left, right, and he owes you 100 bucks, right, reckon it onto me. Right, charge me and I'll pay for it. Right? Whatever wrong he's done to you, I'll take care of it. That's what happened here with Abraham and God. And that's what happened to the Galatian believers. And that's what happens to every single Christian who trusts in Christ. At the moment of their faith, at the instant of their faith, this transaction takes place where God counts our faith as righteousness. At that moment, at that moment, right? Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 1 Peter 3, 8, that he might bring us to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be his righteousness. At that instant, before God, we are accepted, we are righteous. All our sins, past, present, and future, is wiped away, is gone, is forgiven, never uh, recalled again. Right? As far as east is the west, Psalm 103, so far has God removed our sins from us. And at that instant of our beginnings of our faith, God has imputed to our account Jesus' perfect righteousness, His absolute perfect righteousness. Where God sees us, he sees um, his only son, Jesus Christ. So verse 7, therefore, see that then? Therefore, the conclusion is this. Those of faith, right? They are the ones who are the sons of Abraham, right? Uh, this, I'm, maybe this is like, James, like no duh. You might be saying, I, I learned this in VBS when I was in second grade. And we learned it through a song. Right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? <laughs> Second service, I might actually sing this, right? But first service, still early, right? My voice is not right. Um, that's like theology 101. But this is exactly what the Judaizers were refuting. They're saying, You want to be sons of Abraham? Then he was circumcised, therefore you must be circumcised. He obeyed the works of the law, you must obey the works of the law to be sons of Abraham. And Paul is saying no. Paul is saying our VBS teacher in our third grade, he or she was right. That everyone who believes and has the same faith as Abraham is a child of Abraham, the son of Abraham. Verse 7, know then therefore... That it is those of faith who are, know then, I want to emphasize, that's the imperative there. Right? 
So here we see a command of Paul in light of justification. He wants us to know this truth that we are sons of Abraham. He wants us to be convinced. Right? Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand with Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I want you to, I want you to note the scripture and then go back, skip that clause, that phrase there. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand. What Paul, well, Paul, Paul said is the scripture preached. You go to Genesis 15, 6, and it is God speaking. So Paul is saying something quite radical here. By quoting Genesis in this way, Paul is telling us something very important about the Bible. The promise again in Genesis came from the mouth of God. And he's saying it is scripture preaching. Even though God was the one who was doing the talking. He's telling us, as Luther said, when scripture speaks, God is speaking. The Bible is God's word written down. Scripture is powerful. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It is sufficient. It is inspired by God. When we read the scriptures, when we hear the scriptures, it is God speaking to us. Uh, you know, John Piper had that blog post a few years ago where he said, I woke up this morning, I heard the voice of God. Right? We're like, what did he hear? What is this? Yeah, he heard the voice of God. He opened his Bible. He read the scriptures. When we read the scriptures, we are coming to into a communion with God where he is speaking to us. Scripture is alive. And what did the scripture in Genesis proclaim? And what is it proclaiming to us right now? That all nations will be blessed. Now put your finger here and uh, turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we've been going to Romans a lot. I just um, fellowship with Pastor John Smith, uh, Friday morning from Faith Bible Church in Spokane. He's going to be our summer retreat speaker. And he's been studying through the book of Romans. And very interesting, he wanted to just get a snapshot of the gospel. So he began in chapter 5 of Romans and went through chapter 8. And he was so blessed, he's going back to chapter (laughs) 1 and studying it, chapter chapter 4 as well, to complete his series. And I was telling him, you know, we're, we're in Galatians now, and I find myself referring to Romans again and again. It feels like I'm studying Galatians and also studying Romans. And he's saying, James, it's the exact same thing, but in a reverse way, where he's studying Romans, and he's constantly finding himself cross-referencing Galatians. These letters are literally like, they're, they're a pair. They're, they're in a marriage together. They're both expounding the gospel, Romans in a more direct way, Galatians in a more indirect way. When Romans chapter 4, um, Paul quotes Galatians, uh, Genesis 15, 6 uh, as well, right? How, uh, I don't have it here with me. Romans chapter 4. Uh, Abraham, verse 3, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
He goes from Abraham in verse 3, and down there, verse 6, he goes to David. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So we're talking about blessings here. God told Abraham, all nations will be blessed. In Romans 4, Paul is talking about David and the blessings David spoke about to everyone who is found righteous before God apart from works. Those who are found righteous by faith alone. What are these blessings? Um, If you were to take a poll of Christians, they might say um, it would be a blessing before God if I was four inches taller. That would be a great blessing. Or if I was uh, 14 pounds lighter. Or if I was uh, 40 IQ points higher. That would be a huge blessing. My prayer is I would make 40,000 more per year. That would be a huge blessing. And many people have taken these blessings of Abraham and blessing the New Testament. And because of their self-centeredness, they made it into a physical material thing. Whether it's IQ or height or money or you know, it's weight or whatever they, their sinful hearts desire. But what, what the Bible is talking about blessing is so much more, so much more than that, so much more beautiful. Uh, go to verse 8 of Romans 4, and this is uh, him, a quote from Psalm 32. And I hope you're with me this morning. I know I'm going a lot of, a lot of teaching today, but Psalm 32 is a penitential psalm after David was caught in sin with Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah, right? So he committed this unspeakable, horrific sin, adultery and murder, and Nathan confronts him. In Psalm 51, he's afraid that God would leave him. Psalm 32, he experiences experienced the, the rotting of his bones because he kept this sin hidden. He didn't confess it. So he would go to the temple and he would outwardly go to the motions of worship, but in his heart he was filled with shame and fear and guilt and he was dying within himself. And then when he confessed his sin to God, in Psalm 32, he experienced the blessings of those who are righteous by faith and not by works. And what is that blessing? Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the Old Testament beatitude. There is the Sermon on the Mount beatitude in Matthew 5 and Luke 7. Here is the Old Testament beatitude Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. The person is the richest. This is the richest, most blessed person in the whole world. This person has the greatest happiness that anyone can ever find on this war in this earth. And what is that? He refers to sin three times. First, as lawlessness, transgressions, and nomiomai, namas, a lawlessness. 
lawless deeds, twice hamartia, sins, failures, evil, wicked depravity. Three times David said what God has done with them are lawless deeds, transgressions forgiven, and our sins covered, and all our sins God will never count it against us. Anyone who has received this blessing is the blessed, most blessed man in the world. And this is the blessing that God gives the people who trust in Him, who believe in Him. In fact, next week's passage is those who are under the law are cursed. Right? So if you are trusting in your righteousness, if you're seeking approval before God through your works, through your efforts, through your good intentions, you are not blessed. You are cursed by God. God is angry with you. God will expose all your righteous deeds as motivated by pride and ego and sin, and there are filthy rags, and He will cast you away in hell forever. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if you hope, if you begin that first step of that weak, imperfect, minuscule, mustard seed of faith, you have received this blessing. And what is this? It is absolute acceptance by God where all your sins are washed away and He has covered over them and He will never remember your sins. He will never bring it up. He will never recall before your face and ask you to own up to what you have done, what you have thought, what you have desired. To God, they are erased forever in His sight. And that is the blessings of justification. See, Abraham was blessed. He got a son. He has a nation. He was rich. He got all this land. But see, by Abraham offering Isaac, what he was saying is, blessings of justification, of forgiveness, is greater than my son. It's greater than the nation of Israel. This land that the Arabs, the Persians, the Israelites are fighting over, forgiveness of sins is better than this land. By him offering up Isaac, that was what his faith was saying. He's saying the greatest blessing is the forgiveness of sin. And likewise, for with us as well as Christians, God blesses us. But the greatest blessing is that this burden of sin has been lifted, never to be brought back again. And we are accepted by God once and for all. That is what David experienced. He had committed murder. He committed adultery. He was a hypocrite. He was exposed before this whole nation. He was a laughingstock. And yet, he received forgiveness from God. And before God, God will never recall these sins before him. He is righteous in his sight because of faith. And for David, this was the blessing that comes by faith alone. And then verse 9, so then, this is the conclusion. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So That's us. That's you and me. Every, anyone who believes in Christ, who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham. What do you mean? I'm not even married. I don't have children. Right? I'm not rich. I don't own this. I don't own that. I don't have a nation. I don't have land. What do you mean I am blessed? 
And the Bible says, no, you are blessed if you are of faith. Because God has granted to you what he granted to, to Abraham. The forgiveness of all your sins. Imputation of his righteousness. Where not only is Abraham a friend of God. Right? You are a friend of God. You are God's friend. He looks upon you with favor. There is joy in his heart when he considers you. Because he sees not your sins on the righteousness of Jesus. Because you trust in Jesus and not in your own righteousness. How beautiful is that? Next week is curse. Right? Next week is curse. Right? This great blessing is for those who are believing, to those who are seeking to be justified by works, you're under a curse. Well, 2 Timothy 4 2 says, Preach the word. And then with complete patience, it says, Teach, rebuke, reprove, and exhort. I preach the gospel to you. I preach the word, the message of Jesus. Our closing section, I want to uh, instruct you a little more. I want to rebuke, reprove, and train you in righteousness uh, with complete patience. So with closing our time, a few thoughts of just exhortation, pastoral shepherding exhortation. Um, First of all, this is more instruction. Um, circumcision was an outward sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham, and the sign that they were in a contractual relationship together was circumcision. It was their little contract. God made the Mosaic covenant, this bilateral covenant with the nation of Israel. If I do this and you do this, you'll be my people, I will be your God. If you break these commands, then you'll be cast out, you'll no longer be my nation. A bilateral contract. And the sign of that contract was a Sabbath, worshiping on Saturday. Um, what is, what are we under? We're under the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 and on, where um, he'll replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. God will dwell within us through his Holy Spirit, right? He will, he will give us a new heart, new desires, new affections. He will dwell within us. A unilateral contract where he will change us and make us righteous positionally and practically. What is the sign of the new covenant? It is not baptism. It's communion, right? So Matthew 26 and Luke uh, 22 When Christ broke the bread and passed the cup, he said, this is the sign of the covenant. Verse 28 of Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Luke 22, 19, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, so there's only two ordinances for the church. Baptism, 
And that's only once. We don't, re- we don't do baptism again and again. You sin, you, know, you fall away, you come back. We don't baptize you again. It's once for all, pointing to your salvation. But communion, it's for now and the future. It's to be continual. It says do it often. Because 1 Corinthians 11, every time we practice communion, we proclaim the name of the Lord. We proclaim his death. We remember his ascension. We remember his return. It's a means of grace to believers. It reminds us of the gospel of Christ. It, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 says that some Christians are weak because they take communion in an unworthy manner. So there is a correlation between spiritual weakness and communion. If you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, then you are spiritual, spiritually weak. So, so the correlation must be not only taking it in an unworthy manner, if you, if you are not taking communion, or if you're not taking it often enough, if you're not reminding yourself of the gospel through this ordinance often enough, the result is spiritual weakness. So the elders and pastors of your church were wrestling with communion. We used to have communion service once a month, a whole service devoted to communion. But now with the busyness of our ministry and two services, we are doing exactly what we didn't want to do. We are just kind of adding communion at the tail end. And, you know, your pastor, he goes long in his preaching again this morning, right? I go long, I forget myself, and so we have to rush through communion. And so communion is marginalized. Therefore, the gospel is somewhat marginalized. And maybe we are spiritually weak because of that. We want to bring communion into the focus of our church, the main practice of our church. And what we see in the scriptures is that this ordinance was given to the, to the local church under the ecclesiastical authority of the local church. In the New Testament, we find it was practiced in homes. There were house churches. They didn't gather together all together on a Sunday. They didn't have um, worship services like this in the open or didn't have public meetings where they were able to. They met separately, and they practiced this often as they could, from house to house, breaking bread in their homes, remembering Jesus. Um, I think we don't see this um, elevation of communion where a priest has to be there, and he has to somehow magically transform the bread into the body of Christ, the cup into the blood of Christ. No, it is a means of grace through the remembrance of the gospel. And just as our leaders, we give as elders the quote-unquote authority to lead our care groups, to teach the word of God, to pray for our people, right? to, to serve them spiritually, we're wondering if we have elevated communion too high. If they're able to preach the gospel and teach the Bible, we are moving in the direction where we want to enable them to break bread in care groups where they remember Christ together because the purpose of communion is not that act of bread and cup. It's to remember Jesus. And we hope that that would bring the, 
Lord's Supper. It's the mainstream of our church, the mainstream of our fellowship, of our relationships, so that we would just continue to grow in the gospel together. So whether it's on Sunday or midweek, we receive grace and believers come together and we remember the cross together. Secondly, I've gone too long. Um, I'm going to have to just close with this. Paul makes this connection in Romans 4. God chose justification by faith alone, and he had one key um, end in mind, one key element of why he so loves justification by faith is that it excludes boasting. God is jealous for his glory. He does not desire to share his glory with anyone else. He will not share any credit with us for our salvation or for our sanctification. He wants all glory to be him alone. Psalm 75 um, it is a mark of, this, of evildoers that they boast in themselves. Uh, Psalm 94, 4, all the evildoers boast. Isaiah 16, 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is. His arrogance, his pride, his idle boasting, it is not right. God sees any spiritual boasting as an offense to him because it is so hypocritical. Romans 2, Paul talks about the boast of the Israelites, how they boast that they know the law and they obey the law. They do not commit adultery. They don't steal. Right? They preach against idolatry. And Paul said there, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So when anyone boasts, that they are righteous in any measure because they obey God's word, at that moment, they are dishonoring God because they are breakers of the law of God. So if you say, I've never committed adultery, God says to you, liar. If God says, I haven't committed a divorce, I haven't been divorced, God says, liar, he knows your heart. If you say, I've never stolen anything, God says, liar, he's seen your covetousness. Right? If, if you say, I've never lied to anyone, God says, liar. Every idle word you've said will be held against you. Right? Boasting is an offense to God because he sees our hearts and sees our hypocrisy. God wants to exclude boasting so that he might get all the glory. Judges 7, Gideon against the Midianites. He rallied his people. 32,000 soldiers showed up to fight against the Midianites. And God said to them, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their land, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God says, no, that's too many people. You're going to boast. Reduce it down to 300 so that God might get all the glory. Therefore, our boast is to be only in the cross of Christ. For us to boast before God and before others spiritually of anything apart from Christ 
is an offense to God and is robbing God of his glory. And we are being inconsistent with the gospel. Gospel, God designed it that way so that it might exclude boasting. That's why Paul said, Galatians 6.14, far be from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are to boast of only one thing in addition to the cross, which is our weaknesses. We are to boast of our weaknesses. Paul says in Corinthians 11.30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, you know this passage, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will gladly all the more boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. So we are to boast of our weaknesses. So what is God doing in our lives? What is God doing in your life, in my life? He is stripping us of our boasts. So you're boasting of your um, personal righteousness and you are seeing your sins like never before. You're being humiliated. God is ripping that away. You're boasting of your intelligence. Right? And God is surrounding you with people that are way smarter than you, and they are laughing at you because compared to them, uh, you're, you're, you don't have a full tank of gas, and so God is ripping away that boast. Your boast is that you have a good marriage. All of a sudden, you have all these conflicts in your marriage because God wants you to boast only in Christ. You boast you have a good family, your kids are just, God has been good to you, your kids are so obedient and humble and perfect, and God is ripping that away from you because he wants you to know right, that the way up is the way down. He wants you to boast only in Christ in your life. The struggles that you're having, the trials, the persecutions you are going through, what is God doing? Right. And I believe God is doing that in a corporate sense as well. God is stripping our church of our boasting. Right? We're going, we've gone through some tough patches as a church. What is God doing? All that we boasted upon, right? whether it's my preaching, our relationships, all the good things that we're about, all the good people we have, how Corinth was a great church. God is saying, no, he's taking away all these boasts. We prided ourselves in. We judged other churches, judged other Christians, and we thought so highly of ourselves, God is ripping that away. So that as a church, our only boast is Christ and him crucified, what God has done for us. See, that is the life, and that is a church that is walking in light of the gospel. That is consistent with the cross. And that is what God desires of us because of his love for us. Well, if you would st stand, and uh, I really want to sing Psalm 73. I will sing it next week for our opening service, our praise. So much time has passed.
apologize. We'll cl- close with our with the, with our prayer. God, we uh, thank you for your for the cross. We thank you for this message. We thank you for the truth that we are justified by Christ alone. And Lord, I I just feel pressed to close with our last two thoughts. And I we want to just ask for your forgiveness for having a low view of communion and having a high view like Martha of our works, of our ministry, of our service, of our, our, our doings, when uh, what you've done for us is central and communion as we receive is the key means of grace by which we grow in faith. We repent and we ask that you would help us uh, to receive from you all the grace you have. And we will remember the cross remember and proclaim your death and longingly expect your return by a faithful practice of communion in our church. And we also thank you for all the trials and sufferings the painful experiences that we are enduring in our lives, in our families, and in our church, we see through Scripture what you are doing. You are taking away all the proud pride and arrogance and boasting that was in our hearts, so much so we even boasted with our words. It wasn't enough for us to harbor such arrogance in our hearts. We were so filled with it. It came out in so many ugly ways. You are stripping us of these things so that our boast would solely be in the cross of Jesus. For in him alone, we have received the blessing, the greatest blessing of being your friend by having our sins forgiven. May we go in peace. May we take this gospel home with us. And may our walk this week be strong because we applied our faith to this gospel message. And pay all this in Jesus' name. Amen.